Hey, Rockheads, if you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about in-service bus, we got some good news. NSBCon's coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. Two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oranini, Ted Neward, and .NET Rocks is going to be there too. Not only that, but we're extending the deadline. Register before August 31st and get two days of video from Udi Dahan's course free. These videos will teach you about messaging patterns, where and when to use buses and brokers, and the right way to go about service-oriented architecture. These videos usually cost over $1,000, but we oh-so-gently twisted Udi's arm so you, our loyal listeners, can get access to the very best, but only if you register before August 31st. So join Richard and me in NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to nsbconnyc.com and register today. .NET Rocks, Episode 1027, with guest Mark Miller. Recorded Friday, August 22nd, 2014. Yeah, buddy. Here we go. It's .NET Rocks, and Miller's here. It's three quarters of Mondays. Shh. Shh. Oh, yeah, I wasn't going to go there. We don't talk about that show. We're going to talk about some serious UI stuff. That's right. I'm sure it'll go well. Oh, it always does. We're also recording towards the end of the day, so we tend to be goofier anyway. A little punchy. Yeah, yeah. However, uh, I am alcohol-free right now. I'm drinking coffee, so there, it's not our usual end-of-the-day kind of thing. No, I've actually, coming out of that conference, which was over a week ago now, I my, my liver was a little bruised. You didn't bring your stunt liver. Yeah, I mean, my stunt liver took a nap. Like, it wasn't good, so. Well, maybe it's time to dry out for a little while. I've been dry for a whole week. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you need a break once in a while. So, you know what? Green tea. I envy you guys, right? You can just stop drinking, right? But my crazy is pretty much nonstop. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> get back in the sound booth. We'll talk to you in a minute. Okay, fine. I'm just saying they can't can't get rid of it right, like you guys can. Let's roll the music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, this is something that I found uh, accidentally, but it turns out to be kind of cool, and I'm interested. Oh. It's wufu.com. W-U-F-O-O.com. And wufu is an online form generator and hosting service. Huh. So basically the idea is that Wufu, these guys that started, they thought they could make better forms, web forms, you know, fill out forms. Yep. And so they created this tool to generate forms and they have a bunch of templates that you can use for like, you know, processing credit cards or PayPal or, you know, taking surveys or joining mailing lists. I mean, there's hundreds of them. And uh, you get a, I don't know, you get three of them for free and then you can start uh, payment plans or whatever. But the idea is that they store all the data and they give you access to it and they give you notifications and all of that great stuff. Or if you want, you can just, you know, right click, view source, copy, paste and, you know, move things into your own website. Interesting. But, uh, and I love the style that their fact is written in and their about us. When you sign up, you know, the little text, the default text under the field before you start typing, you know, uh, for first name, it says what your mother calls you. <laughs> for last name, it's what your army buddies call you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Password, don't share this with anybody. <laughs> it's just kind of funny, you know, but uh, they're obviously loving what they do. And, well, uh, informs is one of those simple things until you really want to do it well. And it's just kind of a pain, like, oh, I got to spend the afternoon building a form, you know? Yeah. And yeah. So here they have lots of templates. You could just copy and paste them or, you know, just host them there. Whatever. Nice. Yeah. So that's it. Woofoo. Interesting. Just ways to save work, huh? That's right. Who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? So uh, I went back. I was looking for one of Mr. Miller's last shows and the last show we did with him was in Ireland. Oh, Yeah. Great show. In October of 2013. And that was uh, show number 108 on the tablet show. I haven't dipped into the tablet show archive for a while. He was doing a rant on iOS 7. And oh, I yes. think it was the iPhone 5. And uh, and Tim Griff had this great comment, which I, you know, really thought was interesting about 
thinking about UI or not thinking about UI as the case may be. He says, this was an interesting show, but I think I disagree with about 90% of what was said. I'm not a huge fan of iOS 7. It doesn't have the same wow factor as the previous iOS UIs, and some of the bits are just ugly. But when people complain about how obvious something is to do, I can't help but think about what happened to, to people trying to figure stuff out. What happened to asking someone or Googling it or binging it? Hmm. For example, deleting an individual text message isn't the easiest thing for Mark to find, but he did ultimately find it, right? How many people need to delete individual messages? Should it be something obvious or will more people have a nicer experience with it hidden? Hmm. I think the answer is it wasn't that you're able to do it or not able to do it. It's how do you make a consistent UI? What he was really on about was... Inconsistency. Yeah. Inconsistency. Hypocrisy in the UI. Right, yeah. that red mean one thing here, and it didn't mean it there, and that was the part that was weird. Right, but uh, you know, there is a deeper part here, and I, I'm actually tapping my inner Alan Cooper here. If you recall the old books about a phone is a sovereign device, it's something you're going to interact with heavily. It's something worth learning. Right. So how do you build a UI? And it's one thing to build a UI that's super intuitive. It's another thing to make it worthy to learn, so that you're efficient. You know, right. you're only an amateur with the device for a certain amount of time. After that, you're an expert and you want it to be as efficient as possible. Well, and we talked about an adaptive UI and maybe Mark can chime in here too. We talked about an adaptive UI that sort of hid the complexity for advanced users at first. And then as you learn things, more things become exposed and less obvious things take. So it sort of morphs over time as you use it so that... Uh, it becomes easier to navigate once you're an expert. And you hear, you see apps like this all the time, stuff that people have mastered that takes time to master because it's complex. And once you have mastered it, though, and you hear, how many times have you heard somebody say this? Yeah, but once you learn it, you can do anything, <laughs> right? Once you learn it. Um, yeah. Well, okay, so I heard you say, Carl, Carl, I heard you say Mark can chime in anytime. So I'm like, <laughs> I was just listening to you guys and, and uh, waiting for you to finish. But, but, um, I think the listener, you know, actually raises a really good point and it, it has to do with how accessible should something, should a particular feature be? And the answer to it is similar to the answer to the question, to a different question, which is how much effort should we put into a particular piece of the UI? Yeah. For example, the options dialog might be something that your your users may rarely go into. And so that might be something as a result you might say, well let's not let's not invest too much time in it. Um similarly, you may say, well let's not make it so easily accessible either. Let's not make it so you know, let's maybe make it a little harder to find so we can hide some of that UI, get that out of the way. So I think the point is incredibly valid. I just think in the, unfortunately the example that I gave doesn't really illustrate a good use of that point in that for me, deleting message was something is something that I do frequently. And I, I went from version one to version two. So I already had a, like a user model, rather iOS 6 to iOS 7. I already had a user model of how to do it. I already had an expectation and a way of doing it. And and at first, that whole thing was entirely gone when I switched to 7. Yeah. So I have these messages to Carl. Hey, Carl, don't tell Karen we got this surprise thing <laughs> happening. And Karen grabs my phone all the time to see what, you know, you know, surprises I have in store for her, whatever like that, right? So I've got to delete them and I can't delete them, you know? So, yeah. so that's kind of what happened there. And that was for me, like I say, for me, I do delete frequently. And, and I think that, that, you know, maybe that is a good point that, that most people don't and that I was just too caught up in my own personal problems on that to, uh, you know, maybe I was a little bit unfair in that, I suppose. But, you know, it, it still, I felt incredibly strongly about it. I had a feature that was essentially appeared to be taken away from me in the transition. And then when I found it, there was, it was a really inconsistent way to get to it, right? I had to, as I recall, I had to click the more button, more dot, dot, dot to get to the delete icon showing up down at the bottom. So I think it has some work to do. They have some work to do there to, to improve that. And I should close out here with, hey, Tim, thanks so much for your comment. It was on the tablet show, but I'm going to send you a .NET Rocks mug because, you know, I read it on .NET Rocks. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or with any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Windows 8. So let me formally introduce Mark Miller. Mark is a five-year C-Sharp MVP alumni with strong experience in decoupled design, plug-in architectures, and great user interfaces. Mark is Chief Architect of the IDE Tools Division at Developer Express and is the visionary force behind Code Rush. And if you don't know what that is, just Google Bing it. 
Mark is a top-ranked speaker at conferences around the world and has been writing software for over three decades. Good to have you on .NET Rocks again, Mark. You know, I'm so happy to be here, Carl. So uh, where should we pick up? I mean, this is like a continuum, this discussion that we have with you on UI and mobile UI in particular. But um, where, where, what is your current state of thought on devices and, and UI and how they rank? Um, well, I, you know, I, I guess I want to preface the answer by saying, you know, by noting we're in an audio only show, right? You can't, you can't see these pictures I'm holding in front of the microphone right now. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's, it's as a result, like, you know, thinking about what am I going to talk about? Right. There's, I went through some of the, some of the slides for um, a new course that I'm preparing for Pluralsight and I'm, and I'm looking through them. I think, oh, I really want to explain that. And it's, and then ultimately I say, oh, I can't do that because it's just too visual you know, so I'm like, so the answer to the question is always going to be kind of a cropped subset of the big answer, you know, in terms of what I'm passionate about, right? And what I want to talk about. Sure. However, with that said, I've been doing a, a huge amount of research um, over, I want to say like the past year in, in preparing this Pluralsight course, um, research into the biology of how our minds work, uh, the biology of how our eyes work. And from all of this, I'm, I'm getting some eureka moments where I'm like, oh, that explains you know, that explains why this is important, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, some of these moments are, are showing up in these kind of visual slides where I say, here's the explanation. This is why this is important. But, um, you know, my sense is if you want to talk about something, let's, let's maybe go into biology a bit. We can do that. I can tell you a couple things that I'm passionate about. There are essentially three things, three projects that I'm, that I'm working on right now that are new and different kind of projects. One of them is, you know, the, the biology part portion. I love the whole idea of a biology of UI. Yeah. Like that's getting down to brass tacks. Mm -hmm. and, and different companies have played this. I mean, it was Apple's when they started calling their screen retina displays. Yeah. Right. That I thought, okay, you're really going to play the biology game here? Yeah. Well, it's the thing is, is, ultimately, there's a lot in common about every single person on this planet. And that the pieces that we have in common lead to these rules that just don't change. It doesn't matter what new UI comes along down the road, what new thing is invented. The rules really don't change. The, the, the only time we're going to get a fundamental change in the rules is when UI switches to essentially uh, reading your thoughts, which I think is going to happen, um, you know, in it's already essentially happening. Uh, Ow, I just got an exception in my head. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So when we move to only thinking about things, then then there's a fundamental change. But I don't think it's an increase in the number of rules. I think it's actually the rules simplify at that point mm. because you're essentially taking physical motion out of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but the rules are the rules are all guided by the biology. So that's one of the things that, you know, on, on the and then there are two other things that are driven by the UI that I'm kind of working on. One of them is a, a custom keyboard, which I brought in and I showed Carl. It's for developers and it's, it's designed to make developers be able to write code faster. And mm -hmm. it's kind of designed to augment existing keyboards. And it's, and it's a work in progress. It's kind of an experimental research project, I guess you call it. But I'm also, um, I've got a series of blog posts on it. And, uh, and if we talk about that, I can give you, you know, the link to those, to those out there. Um, and then the third thing I've been working on, which I can talk about, is um, training the idea of 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 com essentially computer guided instruction in in ways that kind of uh, that that bring compelling significant advantages to both consumers and producers of content that when compared against video training for example um, are I, I guess I have to go back to the word compelling they're they're really compelling words mm -hmm. so so training keyboard and biology those are the three things that are like on my mind so mm -hmm. and when you're talking about training you're talking about training on pieces of software right right exactly so for example um, you know dev expresses we sell components and we sell uh, tools that sit inside Visual Studio and so the technology that I've created sits inside of Visual Studio um, and I don't think I've shown either of you guys this but it you can create a, a a very constrained training path where you say, okay, now, now drop this control onto the form and we're waiting for you to drop it on the form and you can't do anything else, but drop it on the form inside visual studio. And then mm. we do it and we say, now double click it. And then you, you, we wait till you double click it. And then you, you and you, of course you can, you can stop the training, but, the, but 
but it can, we can go all the way into the code, right? So you double click at the events there and then we can say, okay, write this line of code or, or mm -hmm. we can say, Hey, we're going to enter the code in here that, you know, hooks up the data set or does whatever. Yeah. Right. And then we enter that piece in there and, and what we can do is we can automate, there, there are a number of advantages to the training, but one of the advantages is we can automate tasks that are otherwise repetitive mm -hmm. and tedious. Mm -hmm. Number two is we're running at your own pace, right? You, instead of watching a video and having to pause it interactively, you're simply just doing the steps that you need to do, right, as you go through it. Mm. The compelling, one of the compelling, compelling um, significant advantages to us as a company for creating this kind of interactive training is that we are able to create test cases against the training. And so if something changes, for example, we change our interface and, you know, we've asked somebody to do, you know, click the, you know, run designer button. And we've decided whatever, for whatever reason we've lost that or we can create a build that doesn't have that or whatever reason something breaks. The training breaks and we get a notice of that before we ship. Mm. As opposed to with a, compare that with a video, we have to have somebody watch that or wait till our customer goes through the steps and they say, oh, wait, you, you, you renamed something here. You changed something here. Yeah. Right. And so we have validation on our documentation, essentially, is the other thing we have from the training. So I'm working on that technology. We're about to release that in kind of a public beta to get feedback from customers. But it is um, it's 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 very cool stuff. It, it totally has full control of Visual Studio. And not only can it be constrained, but it can also be wide open. So, for example, I can say solve this problem and then you can just write the code, do whatever you want to do. And I can wait till you the problem solved. Wow. Right. Very cool. I, I think of all three of those things, I'm really interested in the, the biology research that you've done. And to tell you the truth, I find it completely fascinating. I've actually been to your house when you've been working on this and, and we've actually collaborated on a bit of your project. Maybe we can talk about that, but it's not important. Um, but, but yeah, the stuff that you've been showing me about how vision works and, and you, you know, why people react to certain things the way they do uh, is being, you know, based in thousands of years of evolution and all of this. Yeah. So just give us some of, give us some of that. That's some good stuff right there. I mean, I could, we could just turn over the microphone, let you go for an hour, pretty much. <laughs> well, um, you know, it, it, you know, here's the thing. We, it all starts with electromagnetic radiation, right? Which runs the gamut in, and I, and I'm going to give some examples and I know Richard's on the other end. He's going to say, Oh, Mark, those aren't, you know, you're not quite at the far, you know, edge of that, but you've got the broadcast end on the lower, on the longer wavelength side. And then you've got cosmic rays on the other side and right smack in near the middle, actually about, a, you know, uh, uh, near the middle of that, you've got this sliver of electromagnetic radiation, um, that we can see. Right, known as the the visible spectrum. Visible spectrum, right. However, we can see that you know that range. However, there are other creatures on this planet, and even humans with genetic genetic defects, essentially uh, X Men and women, who have the ability to see outside of the same wavelengths that we are able to see. Right. 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 When you think about it, like the rods, uh, well, particularly the cones, which allow us to see color vision. You have three three sets of cones. You've got the red the red sensitive, the blue sensitive, and the green sensitive cones. Those three cone sets are essentially sensitive to electromagnetic radiation within a certain frequency wavelength, right range. That's and that they activate if they have a, if something hits in that range, and they don't if if it's not in that range. So this idea that we could see beyond the range is is really seems to me like uh, something that could be tweakable in the future. Where we say, oh, you know what? In the future, like I, it, why not see into the uh, the ultraviolet and the infrared? Spectrum? Yeah, that was Claude Monet's thing, right? This is. Uh, were we talking about this before, Richard? At, I think we were. Yeah, yeah. That Monet had eye surgery. This is in the 1800s, so no anesthetic. Just be horrified because he had cataracts, and they removed the lens from his eye so that he could see through it. But the lens also. Uh, blocks UV radiation. Right. And so suddenly he was able to see in the UV spectrum and that all that impressionist art, very much if you look at those things through a UV filter where you can actually see the UV light from it, it looks like that. Yeah. I was listening to an episode of Radio Lab about colors and about seeing things. And I think it's just called Colors. Yeah. You can check it out at tinyurl.com slash radiolabcolors. This is one of my favorite podcasts, by the way. Um, and basically they're, they're talking about, well, they have many stories, but one of the stories is creatures that can see, you know, as, as Mark was alluding to, uh, infrared, they can see, um, 
you know, way past the spectrum that we can see. And they basically simulated what this would l- sound like if it was sound, right? So they basically took a, a, a narrow or, or a symphony or whatever it was, and then they added, uh, maybe it was a chorus, and then they added voices that, you know, this is what it would s- sound like if, we, if the, what you saw was actually sound. And I thought it was just fascinating that, yeah, I guess, I guess that's right. You know, you, you're, you're trying to imagine being able to see something that isn't there. Sure. How do you do that? Well, you really have no frame of reference because you've never seen anything that isn't there. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, when you think about evolution, right, evolution moving forward, right, you've got, you know, there are creatures like bees and birds, for example, that can see in the old, in, into the UV spectrum. And you see this on their, on some of their plumage and also in the way flowers look, if you look at them through, uh, as a, as a bee would see. In other words, you bring in the UV light into the camera. Um, and you, you filter out the red, for example. And what mm. you see is essentially you see that the pollen is like glowing bright, right? The important key stuff. And the flower is essentially, you know, kind of like a landing pad, almost like a helicopter landing pad that says, you know, come on in here, look at this. In fact, what we see as a solid color for the flower might show up as two different colors for the bee, where there's a circle in the middle that's kind of a little bit darker than the circle on the outside. And the bee kind of goes into the dark circle and then gets rewarded with that pollen in the, in the middle. And from an evolutionary standpoint, so you see certain creatures diverging out, right? And like I said, we were talking about um, genetic defects. There are some folks, Richard was telling me this actually. So I did some research in this and Richard comes along and he says, oh yeah, I've done research in that too. And he starts telling me uh, that, I think you were saying Richard tetrachromics, you were saying uh, one in a hundred women? No, it was, it's much rare. There's, there's a few different studies about the percentages. It's almost all going to be women because it's a defect in an X chromosome. So the Women having two X chromosomes have a higher probability of having it. Near the the piece I've read is a particular neuroscientist has now found one woman who is a functional tetrachromat. She's able to see variations in color that we can't see. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you were talking. Yeah. So so yeah, you were saying instead of it being uh, seeing a, a million variations in color, they could see a hundred million, a hundred million variations. Yeah. So, and it's within the red green span. It's a, it's a variation in a cone in the eye mm-hmm. that allows them to see a higher precision. Cause if they're basically adding a new multiplier there, when you add a fourth cone type, yeah. Mm. Before we go any further, let me tell you that Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills that you need to get hired in just nine weeks. Been around for over a year and great results. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days. And now they made it even better by letting students attend camp online. So check them out at CoderCamps.com. Um, one of the stories, uh, and I don't mean to interrupt here, but this is a, a pertinent. One of the stories on this Radiolab show was about William Gladstone, who was a British prime minister back in the 1800s, who conducted an exhaustive study of every color reference in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And he found that there was no reference to anything blue. Yeah. And that sort of either pointed to the fact that we were all not seeing blue the same, or at least Homer was not seeing blue the same. So, you know, the sea was described as wine dark, just the same as oxen, right? Oxen were also described as wine dark. Hmm. And the sheep are of violet. Weird, isn't it? Um, yeah, you know, there's another thing that Richard and I were talking about with re- that's related to that, which is um, if you look at primitive cultures that only have three words for color, right? Those three words that they have are all the same, right? There's all the same, all yeah. the same, all the same words in the in the primitive cultures, and I think it's like red, and and, and I forget the other if the other two are like green and blue or red, yellow and green. It's something like mm-hmm. it's it's I think it's red, green, and I think and I can't remember the third one is yellow or blue. Um, and and then there's other evidence to suggest that that over time we evolved and later got our what we call now our full color vision that before that we didn't have that ability mm. and ultimately right if there's one thing that we know about evolution is it really favors the most efficient way to solve a problem it really does and when you look at the way our eyes are built right when we are as we move most people that move through the world believe that they see the world with 100% visual acuity and then they get confused when, you know, you, they do these experiments where, for example, we have several witnesses that all saw a crime and they all describe things different, differently, 
right? In terms of what happened, right? And, and that's confusing to a lot of us because, because we believe that we see the world with 100% visual acuity. And why do we believe that? Well, there's essentially an illusion going on that's happening, right? Our eyes are moving incredibly fast, right? You have saccades, which are the eye movements, and you have the fixations where you, where you stop and you look at something, right? You bring something in and, and, and get that information in. Where we fixate, right, if we imagine we're reading, for example, where we fixate, we have 100% visual acuity in that small area. But mm -hmm. in the entire visual field, right, we know, oh, well, we've got peripheral vision. That's where we show, that's where we get the motion and everything like that. But even though we know that, a lot of us still believe that we're seeing everything with 100% visual acuity. But we're not. And, the, and from a biological standpoint, an efficiency standpoint, if we were to flood the back of the retina with cones, right, so we had 100%, you know, densely compact cones, through the entire back of the retina. So we had essentially, from that point, 100% visual acuity hitting the retina. We would have to take the optic nerve and uh, multiply it in size by 100, and the brain would have to be like 100 times bigger too to be able to handle that and process that. So there's really a whole lot of information we're just not getting as humans. Yeah, there's a lot we're not getting, but we're getting the pieces that are important. Well, that's the fovea in the eye, right? Yes, the fovea is where all of the cones are. Right in in or not all of them, but the, where the dense concentration of it is, mm -hmm. and that's the that's the area that corresponds to visual acuity when we're looking when we're looking at a particular thing. But there are some there are things that are going on. Right when we scan something, right we go out and we look at something for maybe two hundred milliseconds in a fixation, then we take fifty milliseconds to go off and switch over to something else. Right and look at that. Right, the decision of where to go to look at next is made in this kind of pre-attentive background process. Right, and especially when you're reading. Right, they've done a lot of studies during reading, whereas the person is reading, one of the things that they have the ability to do, right, our technology is, is so good at gaze tracking, is we can tell when your eye is in the middle of a saccade. So during that 50 millisecond saccade, what we can do in the test is we can change the text that you're reading. All right, what's a saccade and how do you spell it? Saccade, S-A-C-C-A-D-E. And a saccade is the transition when your eyes move from one point to another. When that happens, you're functionally blind, right? So if I wanted to do some awesome magic trick I, I, and I was really a fast thinker and a fast observer, I'd wait till everybody's eyes moved at the same time. And during that 50 millisecond saccade, I would like, you know, do some trick. I'd put a ball underneath a cup or something like yeah. that. And you guys would all be like really impressed. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. I'm working on something, some plan to exploit the functional <laughs> blindness during a saccade. I, haven't, I don't have it yet, but, but. But we're functionally blind during that time, right? And so in this exa example, when we're reading, one of the things that we can do is we can make every letter turn it into uh, an X, except for the, er the letters that are falling into your, your, hitting your fovea. So if we do that, what happens is we learn, we learn how that impacts your reading speed, right? Depending on what range we start Xing out. Right. So imagine a big circle is in focus or, or I'm sorry, is is rendered correctly on the screen and everything outside of that, all the text is in X's. That's not going to slow down your reading speed because we look ahead and this pre-attentive process determines where our eyes are going to go to. OK, so so, for example, one of the things that we do when we're reading is we skip small words. We can identify and recognize those words outside the area of visual acuity. Right. It kind of fades out. It's not like there's a sudden change, right? And we and, and so we skip over those. And this pre-attentive process essentially says, hey, where do you want to look? What's interesting? Like we'll go to eyes, for example, on a face. If you show me a face, I'm gonna we're gonna go to eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And we can track, we use gaze tracking. One of the things that you can do, right, to see, you know, how to really mess with people is instead of replacing the area outside the area of visual acuity, is you replace the area inside with X's. So as a result, you can only read the things that are outside of that. And reading speed drops down to incredibly low numbers, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's, you know, imagine that as a test, right? Everywhere yeah. you look, you see only X's and you can only read when it's outside. It's incredibly frustrating, right? But what happens is as we start, start tightening that circle up of what you can, of, of what's in your area of, of focus and, and what's not, is we start seeing, learning how the brain is working and what decisions it's making. And right now the consensus is it's a pre-attentive process our brains are telling us where to look without we're us actually consciously thinking about that. I tell you what, um, do you have any eye tracking hardware and software? You know, I don't. I, I, I don't. I, I, I'm totally open to that. It's one of these things where I'm doing so many things. I was really almost on it. All right. Well, we need to talk because I have one of these Toby 
uh, tow by. Oh, I was going to get those guys stuff. Yeah, I have a tow by device, and and uh, I'll bring it over and we'll play someday. Nice. Yeah. No. Th- here's the cool thing about the the gaze tracking that Carl's talking about. Let's say you're designing a web page and a website, and you want to you know find out what's working, what's not. Right. You set people down, you show them the page, and this is going to show you where people are looking, where they go to first. Yes. Right. And this can tell you this can tell you what's working, what's not. Remember, you know, in in past shows, I've, I know I've said this. So it's worth saying again, right? It's all about efficiency. So evolution's about efficiency, but so is great UI. Yeah. What we want to do is we want to drop motion and cognitive thought, right? Cognitive load, how much you're thinking and how much you're moving. We want to drop those down to zero. That's what we want to do. And the and the gaze tracking can show you the movement of the eye. The eye movement, just like any other physical movement, can be fatiguing if you're doing it enough, mm-hmm. right? And in some UIs, they force you to move left and right with your eyes or up and down again and again and again, right? Long distances across the screen, and you don't want to do that. Well, Richard, you know what time it is now. Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to drop the cognitive level of this discussion down to zero <laughs> and acknowledge my favorite Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi movie, The Wine Dark Brothers. The Wine Dark Brothers? The Blues Brothers. Ah, uh, If it was written by Homer. Nice, that is. you got it. You've got those Blues Brothers in your hall. They scare the crap out of me every time I come in there. Yeah, they're my gargoyles. Yeah, they're like gargoyles. Yeah, you get off the elevator. The elevator opens and there they are. You're like, ah, oh my God. And they're in mid-dance pose. They're mid-dance. Yeah, yeah. they're literally about to jump. Uh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, join the Telerik Kendo UI Q2 14 release webinar, Enterprise UI for Every Device. This free webinar will showcase all the new goodies in the latest release, including data management and visualization additions, Gantt chart, pivot grid, tree map, mobile widgets, support for AngularJS, and lots more. Register now at Telerik.com slash kendo-ui slash release webinar. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Toby Tellier. Congratulations, Toby. Yeah. Clap a clap for you. Got the clappers out. And uh, Toby just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's just about everything they do in one box, a whole box of goodness from Telerik. Hey, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world Every show, we give away great sponsor goodies. Uh, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. Mark, you know what's coming up. Mm. If you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I would put some of that towards Richard for consulting fees. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, Richard, here's what I want, because I don't think it exists yet. But I, I want a... Uh, a, a receiver for uh, you know for music and and mainly for music. You want a tinfoil hat? I want a receiver, not a tinfoil hat, but a receiver for for audio music that I can essentially hook up my phone to that then puts music out across all my speakers. Um, but I want it to essentially have its own Wi-Fi router kind of you know thing that it puts out that my phone can connect to, and then that it can then connect out to my other router. Uh, my Wi-Fi in the house so that my phone can broadcast to it like via AirPlay or something like that. Uh, but also I, my phone can get Pandora or, or some other internet streaming and put that out there. Cause right now I have this, I bought this one thing that was, uh, that was, I thought was going to allow me to do this and, but it doesn't let me connect my phone to the internet. Right. So I've got, a, it's got a, it's a Wi-Fi broadcast signal. I hook up my phone to it. That's what I want. And I don't know, I, I, I looked around, I really haven't seen anything like that. I, I really want kind of a, to be able to remotely play sound from anywhere in my house via my phone without taking my phone off the internet. That's what I want to do, including my backyard. So I want a wide, wide range signal. I'll solve that for you, buddy. You're so good. I will. So that's how I put, spend my money. Okay. Does Richard know this is virtual? He's not actually getting any money yes, for this? He, okay. he yeah, he understands. That's yeah. right. Oh, I, I want to jump back to the the saccade thing and the, and the whole way that eyes work because I think it does tie nicely into a lot of mobile apps because I I would also wonder if culturally you know we're left to right readers here if we're better at data coming at us from left to right just because our eyes are practiced at that oh yeah I think so I mean you can think about the way we read right this this pre-attentive process right reading was not something needed for survival you know right. for a long time. 
right? It's, and, and you could almost argue, you know, not until the last, like, you know, maybe 10,000 years or less was, mm. you know, was it, was it even needed or even less than that, 5,000, right? So, so, so this idea that by learning to read, we can build pre-attentive processes without realizing it, right? That tell mm-hmm. our eyes where the good place to look is going to be, right? It makes a lot of sense that, yes, if you practice left to right, then ordering things in that, or, in, in that particular order makes sense for that, those cultures. And for cultures that read the other way, it makes sense to do things to order in, that, in the reverse direction. But also, you can create an exhausting app by not following that pattern. Exhausting app meaning something that requires more effort than it should. Is that that more eye movements yeah. are going to tire you out. Well, here's the thing. With mobile, probably not a, as big of a deal. But on larger screens, um, and, and this doesn't happen often, but I have seen examples where people are, have to look up and then down and up and then down or left and right, left and right. And it's, it's, things are too far apart. And I, I've talked about this before, but the proximity rule says things that are closely re- related, either in space or time, mm-hmm. need to be closely positioned together in space and or time, right? There, if there's a relationship that's t- strong, they need to be closely pr- next to each other. So if I have to, if you're making me look left and then look right and, and do that again and again, that's, that's wrong and I shouldn't be doing it. Right. And the question is how far apart is far? Uh, so I'm, I'm like throwing out, this is not a, uh, an answer based on studies, but I, but it, for me, it's, uh, I just got to calculate what the degrees is I'm looking at right here. It looks like it's about five or less degrees. Four degrees is what I would call not far. Mm. And, and, and so I'm looking at, you know, that's what, it, if, if I know your eyes are in a particular location, like you, as an example, the software developers, there are times in our software, we have a pretty good idea. We know where the customer's looking. Right. For example, they just clicked on a button as an example, right? With a mouse or with their, they tapped on something with their finger. Right, right. They were probably looking right there. So we know that's where they are, right? So if we want to show them a message that's really important, let's get it really close to where they are. You know, that that kind of makes sense as an so, example. And in, and typically for Western culture, that'd be directly to the right of the button. Um, yes, I, I would agree with that. A- absolutely. The thing is, is that, you know, this is a theory, but my theory goes like this. is If you're a right-to-left reader and then you learn another language th- that's left-to-right, for example, you switch up, that th- my theory is, is that you're going to be, with training, you're going to build that pre-attentive process that's going to work. Right. Similarly, I believe that if you stick like, you know, whatever the hamburger button, you know, the menu button on the on the phone in the upper left or the upper right, people are going to learn, you know, to learn to look left or right. And it's going to have a, a small, a small impact. Right. Because typically the, those items are used infrequently. I think the more important thing in terms of where that button goes and where you lay things out really has to do with left or right handedness. Ah. And I don't know. I, I feel like I've talked to you about this before. I don't remember who was on a show or not, but I remember at the end of the discussion, I was like, oh my God, every <laughs> mobile operating system in the world should have an option for the user to specify whether they're left or right handed. Yeah. And every app that's built for it should essentially take that into consideration. Right. It was totally clear to me that we were making left-handed people do too much work, you know, that that, by the positions of the buttons, it was just making no sense. Right. And so when you want to pop up that message related to that button, if you pop it to the right, a right-handed person's finger is going to block it. You got to pop it to the left. Well, hold on though. Because the question is, what is our criteria for deciding, determining whether this is right or not? Right. right? And, and your assumption, I'm inferring that your assumption is clarity in seeing the message. And, and that might be true, but it also might be hitting, there might be a, a set of buttons that appear to the right. Yeah. In which case, in that case, as a right-handed person, moving it back to the right is where your thumb's going to naturally go to anyway, or, 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 or your fingers might be inclined to go in that direction as well. In which case, it makes a lot of sense to put the buttons there, right? It, it, yes, there's some obscurity. You are obscuring when you click on things. And if you're going to have a, 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 an interface, and, and this is a good rule of thumb for like mobile devices, if you're going to have it, or, or, and, I, and I think even tablets, if you're going to touch on something and you're going to put a message near it, you definitely want to want to have the items that you're touching down lower so that you can put the explanatory or buttons or whatever up above the finger because by and large all the touches are coming from the bottom of the machine in other words my I'm reaching from below the machine up to the screen right right and so I'm obscuring below my finger but not above it right so that that's another you know thing to consider right maybe I want to put my buttons across the bottom so I just hit the button and the piece you know the information I need is right above it now 
let me run this back again. I'm just thinking this through. So I click on the button. My tendency will be, because I'm right-handed, to move my finger then to the right. So if I can reveal text to the right, that would probably work out fine. That's if the button's on the left side. If the button's on the right side, it's not a big deal, right? Because it's like everything is, n nothing else is obscured. Mm. Right. right. But putting it above seems to work both handed way. But it, I think it would be more work for your eye. That's not a normal reflex. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like on a phone, we're talking about we're in, we're in that four degree, you know, constraint, I think. I, right. I so wherever you put it inside of the four degree constraint that you can see it is probably fine. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think the answer to that is, is, is true. However, even with the phone, though, right, where, you know, it depends also on, on how much you're concentrating and really examining the data inside that's hitting the fovea. Right. When cognitive load is lower, you can put it farther away. Yeah. But when cognitive load is higher. Right, we're really concentrating. There's maybe this is like the uh, maybe I've got like a wireless shutdown for my um, self destruct for my home, right? right? I've accidentally you know engaged self destruct for the home, and then I've got you know three seconds, and I've got to you know <laughs> so I'm deeply in focus and concentrating, trying yes. to. This has got a bit of priority in your attention, right? And then so like, and then I'm almost done, and then the captcha comes up, and it says, <laughs> and then, you know to to verify that you're not a robot trying to to abort the abort the home self destruct, please enter this, and I can't read it. I'm I'm like no, <laughs> and then the voice comes on. It's like, sorry, Mark, this was a test. Yes. <laughs> Next time, the self destruct will be real. <laughs> Let me out of the house, Dave. Just wanted to know if you were paying attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damn this artificial intelligence! Yeah. I really, really should have scaled back a bit. Shouldn't have invested so much time in that. Focus on artificial dumbness. Yes, that's right. what I need to work on. That's it. Right. So, so here's the thing. The summary, the the the, the takeaway from the biology right? The biology of how we're working and the efficiency that's going on. And maybe I'll add just a couple points before I do the takeaway. There is data compression happening all over the place in our brain, both at a cellular level and then inside the brain as well. At a cellular level, the way our eyes work is we send the, the significant, essentially the outlines of the important shapes based on contrast and from the outside, everything hitting the, the rods primarily, right? So, so if a bunch of rods are stimulated, essentially one signal comes through instead of a whole bunch of signals. So we've got that cellular compression that's occurring, right? If we see only mm -hmm. a black field, then it's just essentially like the signal comes through as it's like, a, it's a black field, Mark. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, great. Thanks a lot. And in the brain, we do the same kinds of thing. For example, when we're recognizing words and letters, right, we, we basically have a voting mechanism. We have, we have what are called features, which are the components of the symbols, such as straight lines and curves. And we have things in our brain for recognizing those. In fact, we have a column of cells to recognize a diagonal line at 45 degrees and another column of cells to recognize a diagonal line at 30 degrees, right? And, and all the different degrees. It's not offset by five, obviously, but I'm just throwing those out, right? But we have columns of cells dedicated to recognizing different angles of lines. I contend this is related to swinging through the trees, right. and being able to grab vines and, and, and recognizing trees very quickly, right? So, so that's all there. So we have these things that recognize the pieces of the letters, right? The, the lines. So like for a W, imagine that. I've got angles on the lines for a W. I've got corners at the bottom and, you know, two corners at the bottom and one corner at the top. So my eye sees those in the pre-attentive process and say, okay, I see, the, I see the lines, the diagonal lines. I see the corner, two corners at the bottom, one at the top. I think it might be a W. So outside of the feature recognition, we have the character symbol recognition. So we've got an area of our brain dedicated to recognizing the letter W. But nearby, we have another area of the brain dedicated to recognizing the letter V. And that one also gets stimulated by the same image of the W. It just doesn't get stimulated as, mu as much. Right. Right. And so it's this voting mechanism. You know, how much stimulation does a group does a, does a group of cells have? And then that then goes on out to the word detectors. And the word detectors, right, for reading, for example, give high priority if the letter at the beginning and the letter at the end match. But if the letters in the middle match but are in a different order, not a big deal. We still recognize the word. And so we've got this higher level kind of processing. Again, it's all this voting mechanisms going on that's going on that ultimately leads us to a conclusion. That's why we're able to work and concentrate about, you know, advanced ideas and, and think about those things because we're able to kind of label and name things and give them a simple kind of tag in our head. And when we can think simply about complex things, right, then we can now do more advanced kinds of processing. Mm. So the takeaway on all the biology and the efficiency is essentially we are built this way so that we can hunt and we can mate. That's, that's the main reason we can, we can survive and we can have offspring. That's, that's why we have what we have, right? That's why our eyes move instead of having the whole back of our, our retinas filled with cones. Because if we move our eyes very quickly, we can scan, 
right? And we can get, you know, a, a picture. And as we scan the field, the, the visual field in front of us, we remember all the pieces we're not looking at in visual with visual acuity. And we build this kind of visually acute picture image in our brain, even though we're seeing only a portion of it, you know, every few milliseconds, I guess I could say. Every, mm-hmm. every 50 or 100 milliseconds, every 50 to 250 milliseconds, we're seeing something new. So, um, so the takeaway is, uh, you know, I always like, I get the takeaway I like to think of is, okay, let's imagine our head's 100 times bigger and trying to walk around with those things, right? Mm. We can't do I've it. I've had that day. Right? Because <laughs> you could do that, right? You could have a head, head 100 times bigger and you could just have an eye that doesn't move. Right. Right? But we're doing these, we're picking these things out because they're more efficient. And, and right. so that's, that's the takeaway about a biology. And then that closely ties. And these are the, these are the universal rules that apply to UI, even on other planets with other life forms. Um, other life forms on this planet is, is efficiency is the winning guideline, the constraint. I almost hate to say this because it is a audio show, but are there any resources online you can point us to now that we can go look and see uh, examples of what you consider to be good and bad design? Um, I had some, I, I put some blog posts out a while back and you, I think you just Google Bing great UI. I think it's still probably among the top hits on there. Let me just try yeah. that right there. On the Dev Express blog? Yeah, it's on the De- Dev Express site. All right, well, we'll put is. a link to it then. All right. Yeah, you can do that. Um, I, there's a recording of the Science of Great UI from uh, Dev Days 2011 that's out here. And I've got, here's the thing though, the, the course that I'm creating for Pluralsight, uh, I expect it to be out uh, by the end of summer. Mm-hmm. And this course is, if you have a Pluralsight s- subscription, you definitely want to check it out. This course um, is designed to be the definitive you know, course on how to create great UI. It's going to come in multiple parts. I've been, like I said, I've been researching this and working on, on this okay. for uh, about a year now. Um, and part one, which is about, I think about three to four hours long is, is coming out end of the summer. And, uh, and so look for that. All right. Great. Okay. So Mark, tell us about this keyboard. I noticed that it, it isn't something that you manufactured. There's actually some sort of keyboard prototyping device that you managed to use, which I thought was fascinating. Right. What is that all about? Well, I've been, I've been fantasizing about creating a developer's keyboard for a long time, um, primarily because uh, I've, I need access to way more features than the, a traditional keyboard gives me. And I'm not a big fan of, you know, control alt combinations. I'm not a big fan of using of, of some of the tiny keys, mm-hmm. uh, hard to hit keys that are essential for programming. For example, in C-sharp, you've got, you know, the, the, the brace key, the, the uh, open brace and the closed brace key. And C-sharp requires a shift key to hold down. It's a tiny key. It's away from the home keys. You got to go find that. Often you hit the wrong key. Um, it's, a, it's, an, it's a huge mess. Uh, yeah. If I was redesigning a programming language, uh, I would talk. In fact, I gave a talk actually at, at uh, lang.next where I said, hey, guys, it, it was on the science of UI with programming languages, mm. where I said, look, it's all about efficiency. We don't want programming languages that require many hard-to-hit keys. And I gave examples of that, of, of, of programming languages. And, and in C-sharp, you've got the, the braces. So I wanted to create something. I've, I've, I've always fantasized about, you know, you know swapping out my n- number key bad keys with, with nicely labeled keys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, however, you know, I recently... I came across these keyboards and the, the keyboard uh, brand that I'm using is X keys and, and I'm using actually an older model in it, um, okay. which, which I picked on purpose because I like the layout of the keys. So it was a kind of a discontinued one, but I said, Oh, but I really like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what I've done is I've blocked out some keys. And the reason I've done that is for tactile feedback so that uh, I can, uh, as an example, I have some arrow keys, like the, the cursor keys that you can imagine in the T inverted T formation. Right. Right. I have, the keys right above those blocked out. So I've, all I have to do is just kind of, you know, I can close my eyes and I know exactly where I am. Yeah. Right. I can feel where I am on that keyboard. So I blocked out some keys to gain a tactile advantage. So it's not just a, uh, an array of buttons. Um, I created a driver that is loaded in Visual Studio to connect with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a series of blog posts uh, and, and the link for that is devexpress.com slash keyboard. Uh, and you can see the steps for actually building this, right? This keyboard that I have is just a whole bunch of keys with transparent caps that you can remove, and I've just labeled them. Yeah. So I have labels there for all of the pieces. And and I had this with the at the latest uh, code camp in Wisconsin where we were, and I was showing it to, you know, so I just had it out on the table and was showing it to some developers there. And people started getting enthusiastic about it to the point and where we were kind of realized, oh, wait, you know what? There's this thing called Kickstarter, 
<laughs> and and we could actually design a keyboard that could become real. Yeah. Right? There were probably something like, I want to say, 32 million software developers out there, roughly, last time I counted. And I think that that might be sufficient to warrant at least a, uh, you know, might be able to get some folks interested in this, the point that we can create a keyboard. And, and you know, I'm not a mechanical designer expert, but mm-hmm. I imagine kind of a... Uh, um, kind of a simplicity, but a modular aspect to it as well. So the right. idea is that, so I like the natural Microsoft natural approach to mm-hmm. the keyboard, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I allows my arms out to the side in a natural relaxed position. I'm not in tight with my elbows, mm-hmm. but some people like to have their elbows in tight. Right. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, what if we made it so that you could adjust that? Like with just like kind of, you know, the ability to kind of be in an outward position or an inward position. Yeah. And then, and then secondarily, um, some people might like to have these additional keys, which I haven't really talked about yet, but they encompass things like uh, um, refactoring. Um, I've got a, a nice little board button that looks like the transporter from Star Trek. So you've got, yeah. you know, warping, warping, going from one, I'm not warping, but going from one direction, one place to another. So jumping, refactoring, declaring, things that we do all the time right. with dedicated keys for navigation and dedicated keys for for also for common things that we create all the time and do all the time, like make, create selections as well as keys for the, the hard-to-reach uh, shift, shifted keys, like the braces and the parens uh, and the quotes and the angle brackets, right? Those are all harder keys to hit. And so right. those are dedicated on here as well. And so imagine that as something you could snap onto the left or onto the right or some combination. So that's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of that's the direction. And then we were thinking about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could put my finger over one of these special keys and just not push the key down, but hold my finger on it, like on a set of them. And on that set, it would actually, the software would say, oh, I can see you're holding your finger on it. Let me give you help for what that key does. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so what this does, what this keyboard does right now is it provides accessibility to, to features both in CodeRush and also in Visual Studio that are otherwise harder, hard to get to. That's very cool. And uh, do you have like a, a minion of testers out there that you get feedback from or, or have gotten uh, any suggestions from? Um, just in the in-person kind of demos, right? I uh, have not had a minion of feedback. No, I've not. Um, speaking of which, though, this is a good back to UI, though. You just reminded me of a good skill to develop as a somebody who wants who cares about good UI. Okay. And that is to be aware in your head of what your cognitive load is at any time. Yeah. So if you're engaging, like, for example, you're in an elevator and you're trying to find buttons because they've got like, you know, odd buttons on the left and, right, you know, even on the right or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever, you're just trying to understand something, right? Yeah. Be aware of your cognitive load as you're interacting with it. The same thing as you're interact- is when you're acting, interacting with your own software. Be aware of how far your eyes are moving, right? Be aware of how far your fingers are moving. What, mm. what do you have to do? Uh, you know, and then uh, that's a really good skill to develop. That's great. Well, especially when you're talking about a phone where you might be walking around. Yeah. You know, like the, the, there's a whole other set. Of, it's not just the load about the app, but the, all the other loads you might have going on with you. Yeah, sure. Did you remember Art uh, Lebedev? Yes. Yeah, I knew you were going to bring that up. I, wanted, I, I bought one of their things a while back. Well, first of all, tell us what it's all about. So Art Lebedev was a design studio uh, that made these LCD keyboards. They still and do. And I just went back and checked. They're still making yeah, one. Yeah, they have, they have a new one. The, the popularis. Yeah, they, the the old one, the original one is they're not working. It's not working more. I actually was looking at reviews of that on Amazon of all places, and the mm. reviews were the consensus on the reviews is that the keys sucked. You know, the the lighting was brilliant and in, innovative, but the mechanics behind the keys was not good. And so I was thinking, well, you know, with this programmer's keyboard, it would be nice to have a section of keys that were lit up like the Art Lebedev, um keyboards were. Right, you could change, put a screen right behind those keys, and for those set of th- functions, those would change depending on whether you were, for example, in the code, whether you were debugging, or whether you were in the designer. Well, even language to language, right? If you're working in HTML, there are keys that have higher priority than working in C sharp. Sure, there you go. If you're in HTML or in CSS, for example, right? Yeah. So, so, so f- keys that change, but not a lot, because you don't need the whole. In my opinion, you don't need the whole keyboard to be lit up like that. You just need a small section that can be reusable. And 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 the cool thing about making these reusable and making this as a as a tool for programmers is that programmers, it's easy for them to 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 code and to, to create code and or scripting or whatever it would take to to make these changes. Yeah. Right. It's mm. it could be this. Could, these things could be totally exploited when you still want it to be in the reach of two hands. So you don't want to add a lot of new keys. 
but you do want it to be a to have the keys in the right place. Yeah. But you imagine the relationship between the curly brace in C sharp and the angle bracket in HTML. They're pretty close. Yep, you're right. Like, you'd want to swap between those. I guess you could do that, yeah. I, in my keyboard, I actually have separate keys for both of those. I, right. I have, I, you know, and but but yes, and if you had... Um, but, and you need both angle brackets and curly braces in both languages, but you need them for different reasons. Yeah. So they set they set a different priority position. Yeah, I, no, I see what you're saying on there. The problem, though, with changing things based on priority, you really want the labeled, the, the image keys to be things that are less frequently used and or within that mode, whether you're the mode is editing HTML or, or stepping through code, they're always the, the, in that mode. I think they always have to be in the same place. I suppose. I think I'm I'm a little disoriented. I'm in. I'm imagining what you're describing, right? So if I'm in C sharp, my le- upper left key is an open brace, and my upper right key is a closed brace. Yeah. And right below that, I have an open angle and a closed angle. But then if I'm inside HTML, those would switch, right? Is I think what you're proposing, which at first I'm like, oh yeah, great. But then I'm thinking, oh no, but you know, I I also have to switch modes of my br- parts of my brain, right? I have to have one part of my brain for this and one for the other. It might work, but I'm also wondering because those are so close and you're, they are used in both languages, that if we're going to have a problem with that switching, I think in that case, I would be really wary about switching. And I definitely want to test that out um, on, on users before doing it. I think there I wouldn't, but in other cases, like for example, when I'm debugging, I want my step, my step over, my step into all of my debugging keys all there together. And right. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to be reaching for F10 or then, you know, checking, you know, looking because on my keyboard, my F10 and my F11 are on the sides of the keys and the light doesn't hit it well. I have to always move my head down to see which one is the right key. And it's just not, it's not fun at all debugging for me, hitting those keys. Well, uh, that's about a show for us, I think, Mark. Man, I could just sit and listen to you all day. You're, it's really an inspiration. I hear you saying that, but I'm not, I'm reviewing what I've said. I'm not sure. I hope I'm an inspiration. I'm like, I hope <laughs> something of value. I'm like, oh, I'm yeah. reviewing what I've said. I think, is there anything I said that was of value in oh, the no, last? Oh, no, it's fascinating stuff. And okay. I can't wait for this Pluralsight course that you've been working on for a year. That's the thing of value. This thing is like, like, you know, it's, it's, I put, I put so much effort into this thing. Um, and, and it's taken a long time, right? I'm not doing this full time, obviously, because I, you know, have, you know, real responsibilities I have to do. It's more like but, a TV show. It's got that kind of production right. value. Right. And oh, actually, Carl, you, Carl, you helped me with a piece of this, right? In one of the sections. So I have this, one of the things that's really cool about this course is I, I take you through the evidence that leads you naturally to the conclusion of the rule, the guideline that says, here's what you do. And, and I have two sections on, on dedicated just to background and foreground, for example. Mm. And, and ultimately, the goal is to find out what the background color should be or what the background should be and what the foreground should be. And we ultimately reach conclusions based on that. And we examine things like saturation, color, and patterns and all of that. And we reach definitive answers that say, this is the way it should be. Right in there. But during that, though, we also talk about the fact that what we're, the way our brain processes things, it's simply because most of our interaction is visual doesn't mean the rules change when we have a different sense coming in. Right. Right. And the thing Carl helped me with is foreground and background. We, we did a, 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 a music bit right. in that to demonstrate it, to demonstrate that we have the ability to see background and, and foreground, dif- differentiate those in audio. And so Carl helped me with that. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great course. And, uh, that, I think that is the more, most important thing that I've said, um, here, because, um, like I said, I put my whole heart, you know, my heart and soul into this. It's my magnum opus. When is I, it coming out? I, end of summer is the <laughs> closest I can say, right? All I'm right. like, I'm working on the last <laughs> bits of it. Um, you know, a lot of stuff's going on in my life, guys. Yeah, yeah I know that. <laughs> Try, you know. You have no idea, folks. Good stuff. And uh, Disabling the house explosion system. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, I was passionate about that when I put it in, but in yeah. retrospect, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, one more plug I want to give, and that's for the National Geographic show Brain Games. Uh, if you haven't seen this, you can get it on Amazon Prime. You can get it on Netflix, I believe. Uh, and, and, of course, on National Geographic. And they rebroadcast it on other channels. This is a great series, and they do a lot of stuff about perception and how our brains can be fools, and uh, optical illusions, magic. Apollo Robbins is this guy who, he's a sleight of hand artist. He was one of the guys who who worked for the Secret Service and, uh, you know, taught them how to protect themselves, and just as a joke, he completely stole some stuff from a Secret Service guy at a function where he was meeting the president. Yeah, it's a great story. But anyway, the, it's a great show. You're going to love it, especially if you like how 
your brain and your eyes can play tricks on you. When you watch this show, by the way, so yeah, the show is great. I've seen I've seen uh, at least one episode from this, and when you watch it, you can you can be thinking about how does this apply to to UI, right? The way our eyes work, and 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 interaction, things like that, right? Optical illusions, by the way, show up a number of times in. Um, in the course I created for Pluralsight, right? They are they are key, and I'd love this is the this is like one of the things I'd love to show all the listeners. Like, look at this optical illusion. Here's the connection between this and and evolution and UI, mm. right? It's like that kind of thing. It's very very cool. Stuff. All right, that's it. That's okay. all we got time for. Thanks, Thanks Carl. Mark. It's been great. Thanks, Richard. All right, we'll speak to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a